We live in a world that is full of bias and prejudice and unfairness. But today in the book of James, we're going to learn that God is a God that has no partiality. He's a God that will ultimately work everything out in a sense of fairness. And he gives us instructions on how to live a fair life and be fair to people, even though we live in a very dark world. Hi, this is Reasoning Through the Bible. My name's Glenn, and I'm here with Steve. Today, we're going to be in James chapter 2, where James is very practical, very much down to earth, and full of shoe leather. He's going to tell us how to live and how to be fair and impartial to those around us. Steve, what are we going to learn here in James chapter 2? James is very clear as he expands here that he is dealing with believers, Jewish believers, and he's asking them to look at themselves and to not just hear the word, but be doers of the word. As we get into chapter two here, he's going to expand on that thought process and go just a little bit deeper with it. If you were here with us in James chapter one, we learned that James is writing to Jewish Christians, Jewish people that were followers of Jesus Christ that had come out of Judaism and were now following Jesus Christ and still dealing with how to live in a in a world that's sort of in between the formal Jewishness and still wanted to keep their Jewish identity, but they also wanted to be able to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. James gave very clear instructions on what happens inside of us. If we have lust and sinful desires inside of us, then the temptation is going to produce sin. But if we receive the word of God that he implants in our hearts and we take that to heart, then the external temptations will have no power over us and we will produce holiness in our lives and live a holy and righteous life for Jesus Christ. Now we're in James chapter two. If you have your copy of the word of God, turn to verse one. There we're going to learn even more practical instructions on how to live a very practical life. James is always very straightforward. There's never any doubt as to what James is speaking of. Steve, can you read James chapter 2, starting in verse 1 and going through verse 7? My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? So notice in verse 1, it speaks of our glorious Lord Jesus. That word glory or glorious there is a word that is of great import. Because if we compare other places in the Bible where it talks about God's glory, then we can learn some things here about the Lord Jesus. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, Isaiah 48, 11, both say that God does not share his glory with others. 
God will not share his glory with others, indeed cannot. If we then compare that with the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verse 5, where Jesus is praying to the Father. And Jesus in John 17, 5, he says about the glory that I had with you before the world was. There, Jesus is saying that he had a glorious relationship with the Father before the world was ever created. This tells us some great things, because if on one hand, God will not share his glory with another, but Jesus said he had glory with God before creation happened, then that means that Jesus is God. He is the second person of the Holy Trinity. And when it says here in James 2.1, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, it's an allusion to the deity of Christ. The doctrine of the deity of Christ drips from the pages throughout every book of the Bible. We learn here that our glorious Lord Jesus is the deity of our Lord Jesus. That's why he's glorious. Jesus had the full glory of the Father, which is a tremendous concept. Then it says in in verse 2, if a man comes into your assembly, the word assembly here is in the original Greek synagogue. Steve, what can we draw from that? When it says here that into your assembly, and they're using the word synagogue, that tells us some things about the Jewishness of this book, does it not? Yeah, James, as he noted in the very first verse of chapter 1, he's writing to Jewish believers in Jesus Christ. All throughout this book, he's using Jewish idioms. He's using Jewish phrases. He's talking about Jewish things. Here, a synagogue is what where the Jewish people would go and meet to assemble to worship God. So it's not something out of place for James to be mentioning it here. And the Jewishness of this book has just melded into the fabric of the book. He doesn't drag it in and explain what it is. He's speaking to Jewish people that understand all of these Jewish things. It says here, synagogue, they were either meeting in the synagogue or had started to use the same name for their meetings. They didn't have fancy church buildings like some of our churches have today. They were meeting at people's homes or in the, in the synagogues. At the same time, there is this very Jewish flavor to the book of James. He also uses the word brethren or brother 15 times in this rather short book. Brother, brethren, is a very Christian New Testament term that the Christian community would call each other brethren. At the same time, James has a very Jewish book grounded in Judaism very grounded in Judaism, but also Christianity, because now he's using some Christian terms as well. I find this to be of great import simply because the Jewish Christians, some people today don't even think you can have such a thing as a Jewish Christian. Well, they had them. It's just a Jewish person that believed in Judaism and was still following Jesus Christ and not holding to the Mosaic law for their righteousness, but was putting their faith in Jesus Christ entirely for their righteousness and their salvation. With this, this book is written very early. It's written to Jewish people, and that helps us understand later, even in this chapter, when we get into some of these questions about faith and works, we have to understand who they're talking to and the context that it comes from. Starting in verse 2 and going down to verse 4, it speaks about not showing personality. Verse 1, he said, don't hold your faith with partiality. And then he goes into this system on how to do that. Steve, how big of a danger 
inside the church is partiality. And what does he really mean here? How big of a danger is that? I think it's key here that in verse one, he says, don't put your faith in Jesus Christ as a way of an attitude of personal favoritism. I think there's a parallel here to the Jewish people in the Judaism that they were chosen of God, the holders of the law, where God gave them the law and they were to bless all the other nations. We saw whenever Jesus came, he was at a constant battle with the Pharisees and the ruling class because they had just taken it to a point that where just being Jewish meant that they were going to have salvation because they were chosen by God. James is building on that here. These are people that are following through and actually following the correct way by believing in Jesus Christ as the Messiah and believing on him for salvation. But James has given them a word of caution here. Don't play it up as being something as a way of favoritism. Don't fall into the same trap of what our ruling class did in just being Jewish people. And I think that's important for James to do here. So showing partiality, James is bringing that up. And then he gives these illustrations between a rich man and a poor man and how they're treated when they come to the synagogue. That's something, though, even though this is written to Jewish people, though, Glenn, it's something that we should take as well. We should not take that our faith in Jesus Christ is above others, non-believers, and that therefore we should hold ourselves up either. We need to be humble in spirit as well in our faith in Jesus Christ, wouldn't you say? I would agree 100%. You rightly pointed out that he's linking in verse 1 our faith to this. Don't hold your faith to be result in partiality. This is not a novel thing that James has brought in. There's there's many places in the scriptures that hold that we should not show favoritism or partiality. In Leviticus and Deuteronomy, both says that followers of God should be fair to people and not show partiality. Second Chronicles 19.7 says there's no partiality in God. He is a fair God. Acts 10.34, Peter says that God shows no partiality. This concept of treating everybody fairly and not showing favoritism or partiality to some people at the disadvantage of others is a theme throughout the Old Testament and the New. Here's a question, Steve. In the church today, do we have a problem, or at least is there some corners of problem in the church today where people show favoritism or partiality? Sometimes that that is there. We've heard the stories through the years that some people join churches so that they can be better connected and network for their businesses or other things. They join for the wrong reasons, or they say that they have belief in Jesus Christ for the wrong reasons. James is going to address that here as we continue in chapter two. But what sometimes have you seen maybe, Glenn, that there's a small faction of people that give great amounts to the local church and they end up being influential in many of the things that are going on, that's to the detriment of the church. And in actuality, sometimes the church stops growing because this small faction of people that give a lot to the church get in the way of actually spreading the gospel. I've seen that happen on a couple of occasions, and I think you've talked about that in the past. I remember specifically that happening. I went to a ministry event 
for a fairly well-known Christian ministry event. And they were, at one point in the evening event, they said, okay, everybody here that gave, and they started at a low amount of money, everybody that gave $50 or something, stand up and they will give you a round of applause. And then they kept going up. Okay, now $100, now $200, $500, everybody that gave $1,000, they kept going up to where now it was getting obvious by the end of it that they're recognizing these people that gave large amounts of money to stand up and get a round of applause in front of the whole room. Well, this is exactly what James is speaking against. He says here in verse 4, I believe it is, that this kind of thing is evil that these are evil motives with this. You mentioned, Steve, that happens all too often in churches. Pastors oftentimes are quite poor. Thank you very much. They need these people giving large amounts of money, so they end up giving favoritism to them. It does hurt the church. James is a very practical book here. Let's delve into some very practical situations. In our churches, have they ever named a building after a person? Do our Christian institutions name their buildings after large donors? Or do they do a, name them after people that have given their lives towards Jesus Christ? Do we put up a plaque for, oh, this is the person that gave money for this pew? Or this is a person that gave money for this thing? Do we ever recognize people? I, I've seen people recognize themselves at meetings and stand up and name how much. I remember one specifically, I was in a church where they had a building program going on and they were trying to collect money for a, for a building program. One gentleman stand up and said, the Lord told me to give and he named an amount. It was a, a year's pay for an average person. It was quite a large amount of money. He's there recognizing himself in front of a group of the church. Again, James 2.4, James looks in the eye and says, this is evil. How can we be sure we are not being partial? Because people kind of subtly get sucked into this. What kind of practical steps should a pastor or a church leader take to try to make sure that they're not being partial? We need to understand that we're all in the same boat, that we're all sinners in need of salvation, of a Savior. We're all sinners, people that have fallen short of what God wants us to do. We've transgressed God's laws, and we need a Savior. We need to be redeemed. It doesn't matter what we have done on this earth. It doesn't matter how much we have earned on this earth. It doesn't matter what we have or have accumulated on this earth. We're all in the same situation, and we should keep that in the forefront of our minds. It doesn't matter what class or how much money you make. We're all the same. That's something that needs to be called out from time to time. James does it. And that's one of the reasons why I had wanted to go through James is because James really isn't taught that much, I believe, very many times. Haven't heard a whole lot of sermon series on James or a whole lot of Bible studies that are on James. He's kind of like an overlooked book. Maybe it's because he hits some sore spots with people that they need to pay attention to. He does indeed hit some sore spots. And in the, the passage we just read, and there's going to be more of it here, he very directly speaks against giving partiality to wealthier people against the poorer people. And this is ex exactly what he's saying. And I think it's simply because there's this tendency in churches and, and Christian ministries to give favoritism towards wealthy people. 
that the wealthy people, because they give more, end up having more influence on the direction of the ministry. I think this is a problem. Just because they're wealthy don't mean they're more spiritual. Poor people are much more spiritual. This is one of the themes in James is don't let this happen. Is it just greed? Do you think, Steve, no more nor less than than our, our, our ministry leaders and our church leaders being so partial to the rich people strictly out of greed? I think it's more of a prideful thing that people that have given money in order to build a structure or a building or in order to have certain things that they take pride in that and they want to they want to see the building taken care of. They don't want to see it abused. And so in a way, they have a good heart about it. But in another way, it's a very prideful thing. There's a famous story of a particular pastor where they began having people come to their church that didn't wear shoes and they didn't dress nice and they had long hair and they didn't bathe as often as they should. They started coming to this particular church in order to hear the gospel that was being preached. As the people came with their dirty feet, they had just bought new carpet for this church some of the other people, longtime members that had been there, started complaining to the pastor and saying their dirty feet are dirty in the carpet. The pastor, and this has all been corroborated many times, the pastor said, well, then we'll just pull the carpet up. If they're, if you're so concerned about this carpet being dirtied by these people that want to come and listen to God's word, then we'll just pull the carpet up. It's also, at another point, this pastor was washing one Sunday morning, the feet of these people as they went in. So through his actions, he was showing his other congregant members that had given money for the new carpet that the carpet's not what it's about. It's about people and it's about souls and it's about preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. That pastor had more biblical heart than many. James is very practical. Give a couple of more personal stories. I remember I was at one point giving to a Christian ministry. It was a fairly well-known Christian ministry that I gave a modest amount of money every month for quite quite a while. It, it was years that I was giving to this ministry. It wasn't a huge amount, but I, I gave some every month. Well, one year in my job, I got a very nice bonus at the end of the year. I, I Very nice financial bonus from my company at the end of the year. For me, it was a fairly large amount of money. And I decided I'm going to give away this bonus. It, it was kind of a windfall to me. So I, I gave a lot of it away to this ministry. Well, suddenly now I got a personal phone call from this ministry because I gave this large gift this one month. Oh, thank you, sirs. Thank you for giving this amount of money. You know, and, and I'm sure they were thankful. I'm sure they needed it. But I never got a call when I, all the years I was given the small amounts of money. Did they call those people that, that gave their little bits every month? I never got a call then. I only got a personal call whenever I gave the large amount of money. That's one. Another personal story. For nine years, I was in a Christian drama group that would go in our church and do live action drama that would emphasize and reinforce the pastor's sermon. And it was a great way of communicating simply because it, it would pull people into these stories, sort of live action parables. And we had a very effective ministry doing that. Well, one time there was me and another lady that in the little three, four minute drama sketch that we did were playing street people, street bums. 
that were at a soup kitchen. We showed up one Sunday morning with street looking like bums from the street. We intentionally were looking like people that had slept outside for the last two weeks and really didn't have any clothes or anything. So we're, we're standing there for the whole first part of the sermon is just part of the congregation. And then we get up and do the drama sketch. And it was all about this scenario here in James where he says, don't be partial to the poor and don't be partial to the rich. Afterwards, we had some of the people from the congregation came up to us in tears saying, I was judging you based on what you were dressed like. And then you stood up and did a drama sketch on not judging people based on what they look like. These things happen. We have churches, Steve, that now are run like businesses for the sole purpose of making the leaders rich and bringing in more and larger donors. I really think James would have a hard time with this because there is so much greed and so much partiality in our churches that this is a tremendous lesson that we all need to take to heart. And the gospel of Jesus Christ has been turned into the gospel of sowing money so that you can get more money. That fits right along here with what James is talking about as well. Now, moving on in verse five, it says here that my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? There are passages like this one that God indeed does have a heart for the poor. God does indeed have a heart for the poor, it says it many times. But we can take this to be something that it's not saying. There is a branch of Christian theology that's called liberation theology. And liberation theology teaches that the primary reason of Jesus Christ and the primary reason of the message of the Bible is to say that we need to take care of poor people. And liberation theology, at least some of them, would go on to say that poor people, just because they're poor, are righteous, and rich people, just because they're rich, are evil. And they turn the gospel into a, an attempt to reconcile these social problems of disparity of wealth. That is not what the Bible is about. The reason why Jesus came was to solve the sin problem, not to solve the poverty problem. The reason why Jesus came was because we needed a, a savior that we're poor in, in spirit and we're unable to pay our sin debt. That's the problem. People aren't righteous just because they're poor. That's a great and grave and tremendous error. That said, that God does indeed have a heart for the poor. This is one of those passages that says that. But for example, if we just look through the Bible, the Psalms speak of the poor and what we should do with the poor 86 times, 86 times in the psalm. The New Testament speaks of the poor 133 times. When Paul went to Jerusalem and met with the apostles to verify his gospel with the, the Jewish apostles, Paul says the one request they told me was to remember the poor. He says that in Galatians 2.10. Think of it. Paul was saying, my ministry is going to be the, to the Gentiles. The apostles had one request, remember the poor. The poor is on God's heart in the Old Testament. It's on God's heart in the New Testament. God says in Isaiah 11.4 that in the end, God will finally give the poor a fair deal. Quote, with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness the afflicted of the earth. God has a heart for the poor. It says so many times. 
Only in God's kingdom are the poor going to get a fair shake. Because in our day, the poor don't get a fair shake. The, the rich people seem to have the shortcuts and get the ear of the leaders in the government, but the poor really don't have a voice. From that, we need to, especially as Christians, pay a very close attention to what James is saying and not be partial towards the rich and not ignore the poor. How do we keep from doing that? I think we should realize that the tendency to give preference to the rich and powerful is so great that all of us, me and you and all of our listeners or all of us are susceptible to this and we should be actively trying not to. Unless you're actively trying not to give preference to the rich and powerful, good chance you'll fall into it. James says there in verse seven, don't blaspheme the fair name by which you've been called, basically is what he's saying there. Don't sully the name of Jesus Christ by showing favoritism to the rich people. In verse six, he talks, aren't those the same ones that drag you into court? Why do they drag you into court? They're wanting more money. They're wanting more things out of you. James is clear here. Everybody is in the same situation. As I noted before, don't be showing favoritism to the rich people. He, he does indeed say that the rich are the ones that drag you into court. Steve, how many times have you seen a lot of poor people suing each other? It's, it's, it's always the people with, with yeah. money and power that are suing each other trying to get more money or power or keep their money power. It's the rich that end up dragging us into court. The poor people tend to not do that. With that, we're at a spot here where we're out of time for today. But these are such practical, such down to earth. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where the shoe leather hits the pavement. And very practical advice on how to live and how to run our churches. And we so need to pay attention to this. As James has said, to receive the word of truth and then turn that into being doers of the word. And we're going to continue with that. He hits us even harder. And we'll get into that next time as we reason through the Bible. Thank you for watching and listening. May God bless you.